welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. We decided, though we have a growing list of requests, to just kind of do something random. And in fact, this was just something that crossed my mind. Actually, you know, we hadn't picked anything uh, since the last time we talked. And I happened to have this movie on DVD. So I knew that it would be easy for us to come by. <laughs> so laziness basically brought us to here. Pretty much. Okay. I mean, that's <laughs> 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 how most of my decisions are made, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we decided to do 1997's Wishmaster. Yes. I was just thinking, you know, we had talked about when we did Scream how we had really hit most of the major franchises. And then I thought about that statement and I thought, you know, there are really quite a few that we haven't done. I mean, we yeah. haven't done any Candyman. We haven't done any Leprechaun. I gosh, I don't know. Uh, Leprechaun. I don't know if we're ever going to get into that. Hey, I want to do <laughs> Leprechaun. I'm I'm really jonesing for Leprechaun in space. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen Leprechaun in space. I've Ooh, seen I most have. of them. I don't think I've seen that one. Well, you're but Wishmaster was a franchise in the late '90s and early 2000s, and I saw them all, and they played some of them on uh, cable television quite a bit there for a while, especially the third and fourth ones, because I think that the third and fourth ones uh, premiered on cable. I, I don't think they even were straight to video. I think that they were cable movie fair. Mm. But the uh, first one came out in 1997, and I remembered liking it, or at least I thought I remembered liking it, but I thought, oh, you know, this is one of those stupid movies that'll be fun to goof on. And so I recommended it and and I sat down to watch it. The first thing that pops up when you pop this movie on is Wes Craven Presents, which I had completely forgotten. Mm. I had no idea that he was an executive producer on this movie. And so right from the beginning, I'm like, oh, wow, well, that's that's pretty cool. And then as I was watching it, I was <laughs> my thought was. This is really not a bad movie. Like, there's actually quite a bit of cool stuff going on here. And I had completely forgotten that it is chock full of excellent horror movie cameos. My God, it sure is. <laughs> and and so I was really pleasantly surprised. Now, it's not a perfect movie, and I will be more than happy to tell you the things that I took issue with. Um, but overall, I was really kind of really pleasantly surprised to revisit this. Is this a movie that you had seen, Todd? Yeah, I had seen it. I had seen it probably about the time it came out. I think I probably rented it on DVD somewhere in the when I was in in college, uh, probably around ninety seven. So yeah, I, I'd seen it before, and I remembered a couple big scenes. The big showpiece scenes, basically, of the movie being pretty wild and crazy. But it didn't really stick in my head as a movie like, yeah, let's, you know, let's let's keep this one in rotation. It really kind of came and went. And then I didn't keep up at all with the rest of the series. So I, I didn't even know they're like, gosh, they're like five of them, right? Five or six? Four. Four? Four, okay. yeah. So at least, yeah, I didn't even know there was more than two. So uh, it seems like uh, they were they were pumping them out in short succession after this, like every year or two after this for the next few years. And then it kind of stopped. I think uh, they were probably trying to get another iconic horror movie villain 
going, right? Like another mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger or Jason yep. or something with this. Uh, I've seen people r- reference him as almost like a cross between Pinhead and Freddy Krueger. He's got that, the Wishmaster has that wit about him that Freddy Krueger kind of has, that malevolence, but also that dead serious kind of, well, actually his look isn't too far off from the Cenobite look, really. True. And the the fact that he comes from another world and the, the the space between worlds, basically, as this mythical jinn character, the evil genie, the more uh, in keeping with the actual Persian legends of the genie as being a malevolent type uh, trickster spirit instead of a goofy, fun, happy, happy guy like Aladdin or whatnot, which came out around this right. time, too. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's an interesting take on that. And I was also surprised to see so many horror, so many cameos. I guess, too, now watching this uh, at 41 years old, having seen so many horror movies and become very used to these faces, I probably recognized a lot more faces now than I did when I was watching it in 1997. Oh, gosh, yeah, I definitely did. I, there were several times I'm like, oh, I know who that guy. <laughs> yeah, like, who is he? <laughs> that, uh... that... That oh, guy yeah. is somebody. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would have to look him up. <laughs> That's right. Um, right. So it was directed by Robert Kurtzman, who hasn't done a ton as in terms of directing, but he's a really well-established makeup guy. Uh, he did makeup on From Dust Till Dawn, Gerald's Game, The Haunting of Hill House, Dr. Sleep, Tusk, some, some really big stuff, even, you know, up to current day. Well, he started out on Night of the Creeps, which we've done, moved to Evil Dead 2, Phantasm 2. He did Intruder. Clearly here with Evil Dead 2 and Intruder, he he crossed paths with the Raimis. And Sam Raimi actually is the one who recommended him to direct this movie, as a matter of fact. And Ted Raimi, uh, Sam's brother, uh, plays a cameo role in this as well. Yep. And it was written by a guy named uh, Peter Atkins, who I didn't recognize a lot of his work, but he got his start in a theater group in Canada, I think, with Clive Barker and Doug Bradley. Because of his association with the two of them, then he did some work on some of the Hellraiser movies. So, you know, these are are folks that may not have some of the prominence of some of the directors and writers that we've talked about, but certainly have worked with some of the the big guys in in the genre. And it's just, it's a pretty simple story, really. I mean, it opens mm. up, we see this like alchemist or wizard or something making uh, a gemstone. Uh, and it was really reminiscent to me of the opening scene of Nightmare on Elm Street 1 where Freddy was making his glove. Like it's all yeah. close up uh-huh. and you just kind of see the process. And then we get this script on screen one who wakes a gin shall be given three wishes. Upon the granting of the third, the unholy legions of the jinn shall be freed upon the earth. Fear one thing only in all that is. Fear the jinn. I didn't realize until after I'd watched the movie and I was going back to research it that the narrator is angus scrim who of course we are huge fans of so like you said it is the source of our kind of genie legend um but again much more malevolent than it's become uh, in our culture it what well, seems to be a very um 
low bar to uh, to, cro- to cross there. I mean, you only have to make a third wish, and then basically the world is over, <laughs> and the jinn take over, yeah. right? Like throughout history, everyone's only gotten as far as two. I mean, wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like the sequels explore this more because it's not like this jinn is the only one in existence. There are other ones too, but I don't know how the others are accessed. You know, this one eventually becomes trapped in this gem, which then it's, it's like the genie in the lamp. I, I guess somehow you have to summon it or whatever. It's, it's, it's a little bit nebulous, but whatever, it doesn't matter. The opening scene is in Persia in 1127 AD. And I just thought this opening scene just really set the bar super high for the movie. I mean, it, it's like in this, courtyard kind of thing i guess Mm. and the djinn basically just slaughters this entire courtyard full of people and this is an effects movie i mean that's what the movie is really all about it's these effects and they're i would say probably 95 percent practical and in this opening scene you've got this djinn slaughtering all these people but in these it's not like he's just running around with a sword disemboweling people i mean it's all just this really creative stuff like one lady turns into a tree some other guys intestines are like bursting out of him and biting and attacking him uh, a skeleton breaks out of this guy's skin and then is running around killing other people one guy turns into a snake I mean, it's just this huge effects-driven scene. And it and everything that follows, I just thought looked fantastic. I just thought it was great. Like, yeah. this is just, this is so up my alley. These practical effects, <laughs> I, I was just stoked from the get-go. Well, yeah, when your director is, is basically running the special effects from his own special effects house, you would hope it would be that good, right? And Greg Nicotero is also, was also on his crew at this time and eventually split off to do his own thing. But Greg Nicotero also you know, runs a lot of really great special effects for a lot of films, including uh, The Walking Dead. He's the mm-hmm. lead effects guy on The Walking Dead series. So the, the, I, I would say the only problem I had, well, the first, the first part of the movie is great. Like you said, it's just an excuse to raid the effects shop for everything that you can find and try all these different things out. It was just everything but the kitchen sink. And then we kind of come back to that at the end of the movie as well. And then you're right, throughout the movie, we get a lot of very detailed gore effects. I mean, one every five or six minutes, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And, and so that makes, they make sure that the deaths are really gory and really creative. And that part of it's good. I did feel like it really threw them in your face. Like, it really lingered. It was a very um, exploitive movie in that way. Just the gore was... And the gore effects were really front and center. So if that's something that you like, then yeah, I mean, this is like a whole issue of Fangoria could be devoted to this movie and maybe was. But then again, the effects sometimes seem to just sort of overtake the movie. It almost seems to be the point of the movie at times. And I know I got a little weary. I know that sounds crazy, right? Like it should be just like, like bring it on. But for me, after a little while, I got a little weary of all of the the long lingering close-ups of the gore and the, you know, splitting of heads and things exploding and stuff like that. It felt like a bit much to me at times. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I was just in the mood for it or maybe it was, you know, some latent nostalgia. I don't know. But I I just uh, I was down for it. I thought it was really cool. And, Mm -hmm. And just because it was so the craft of it, it was done so well. Yeah. And and just so many like you said, I mean, it's just one after the other. And had they been in a effectively done, then yeah, I definitely would have been rolling my eyes at it, but it it just felt so skillful. I mean, they were fun to watch. They looked great. And I've said this before, but the, the older I get for whatever reason, super realistic, like body horror, like a lot of blood and and that kind of stuff. It, It gets to me more than it used to. It didn't used to bother me at all. Um, but this, I mean, it, and, it, and it's fantasy. Not that real. No, it's fantasy. Ahead. No, yeah. go ahead. And, yeah. and it's fun. As good as the special effects are, the practical effects are, the visual effects definitely show their age. <laughs> True. And it's a shame, really, for those to be juxtaposed in here at times. It kind of cheapens the movie a little bit, but it's just more of a product of its time. At this time, I think they were really still experimenting with CGI. Right. And some of the CGI in this movie is really pretty lame yeah (laughs) but you know aside from that like you said the practical stuff is quite good right and i agree with you i mean the the visual effects aren't amazing but they're kind of few and far between uh at least as compared to the practical effects and so i was willing to forgive some of that but anyway in this opening scene uh we see the gin the gin is played by andrew divoff who I think just slays in this role. Uh, he's yeah. He's got this kind of sinister look. The, the man, the actor, has kind of this sinister look. He's got these piercing eyes. Andrew Divoff has been in a million things, but hasn't really established the level of fame where people are like, Oh yeah, that guy, you know, he plays smaller roles. Uh, most of the time I remember him. He was in a movie sometime in the nineties, I think called toy soldiers. And it had, Mm. um, Will Wheaton and who's the, the guy from, he played the best friend in Lord of the Rings. I can't think of his name. He's in the Goonies. Uh, Sean Austin. Yeah. Sean Astin. And, Oh God, Lou Gossett Jr. Right? Wasn't he in that? Yeah, I think? yeah, he was. And this wasn't this movie. I don't think made much of an impact, but I always liked it as a kid because it was one of those buddy movies, like these teenage boys, like up, you know, fighting against bad guys, and those kind of movies were always cool to me. He was in that. I remember him from that. He was also in Air Force One. He was in Lost. He's had an established career. He's just not like an A list star, but he's he's great yeah. in this role. And he has a great voice and they have him, you know, when he, he does play like a human version of the character, but uh, for the most part, he's in this practical makeup uh, that apparently took about, I think three and a half hours to put on every day and an hour and a half to take off something like that, which, you know, I've heard of other movies where the makeup takes significantly longer than that but it looks really good and he's i don't know how to describe him he's just monstrous and he's got like kind of almost these long flesh and bone kind of ponytail things coming out of his head and um he's very defined as far as bone structure and he's got these crazy colored eyes 
he looks great, but he's like talking to this prince of Persia or king of Persia or whatever, and all this mayhem is going on all around. By all the names of God, this is not what I wanted! Then wish it away, exalted one. Wish it away. Stop! No one wishes. I beg your majesty, silence. But my poor people, I must! Do you wish their fate on the entire world? No more wishes, please. I warn you, wizard. Hold your tongue. One more wish is all this creature needs. And the wizard somehow traps the djinn in this red stone. Um, I think they call it like a blood opal or something later on. And then we cut to America in the present day, where a man named Raymond Beaumont, played by Robert England is an art collector or like an artifact collector or something like that. Just some rich, rich guy, rich asshole. Right, <laughs> right. And uh, he's <laughs> and he plays that well. Quite well. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that Robert England is a really, really nice, friendly guy, but he plays this sinister asshole role very well. And he's, you know, like rubbing his hands together like, I've waited 10 years for this piece. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. in this big crate that's like coming off a ship and uh, his assistant is Ted Raimi, who, you know... I, the Raimi brothers are filmmakers for the most part, but we've seen Ted Raimi in other movies too. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as it happens, the workman who is operating the crane that is unloading this artifact is drunk, uh, is drinking and is drunk, and he spills his drink on the controls, which causes them to sh uh, short out, and it drops. The crate drops and crushes Ted Raimi. <laughs> and uh, the the statue shatters and we, the audience, see that inside this statue is this gem um, that we had seen before. And one of the random dock workers takes it and apparently takes it to a pawn shop because we see this pawn shop guy bring it in to some business for appraisal. And this is where our main character, Alexandra works and i guess this is kind of what she does she appraises stuff the main girl is played by a lady named tammy lauren not to be confused with the hideous tommy lauren but um <laughs> and and i you know she's she's just kind of a recognizable face but that may just be because she's just kind of a generic pretty lady i guess i mean she's she's done tons of tv she did a big stint on Young and the Restless. She was on Home Improvement. She's done tons of stuff, but nothing that I specifically remembered her for. And I'll go ahead and say that my biggest complaint about this movie is that our heroine is not particularly engaging. Yeah. There's there's nothing wrong with her. She's not a bad actress. She's fine. And she's a beautiful woman. It's just, well, for whatever reason, I just didn't really connect with her that much. And that's, you know, some of the heroines in these horror movies are not even great actors, but there's just something about them. Like, for example, Heather Langenkamp. 
in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp is not an amazing actress. She's not. But for whatever reason, I just find her very endearing and I like her and I care about her. And she really carries the weight of some of those movies on her shoulders. And I just didn't get that. And I feel bad saying it because she didn't do anything wrong. She's fine. But I just didn't connect with her very much. Well, she doesn't have much to do. I mean, for most of the movie, she's just hanging around getting visions and and, and feeling that something is off. And uh, it's the djinn, when he gets released, who's kind of working his way towards her. Right? Yeah. And the reason he's working his way towards her is what? I think it's because she she's the one that released him. So she gets this gem. She's like trying to appraise it. So she breathes on it and she rubs it. And so I guess <laughs> that's what like releases him or whatever. But it doesn't immediately release him. I mean, like you're right. The the movie makes a big deal out of this that that she breathes on it, rubs it like it's extremely significant. But then it's not like he pops out no, or anything. Not right? yet. She gives the jewel to her friend Nick, who's Josh. Kind of, um, Josh, sorry, who they kind of want to. Uh, they're trying to get a relationship going, or he's interested in a relationship. She's not quite sure. They're really good friends, right? And uh, he works in the lab, and he's going to put it in the spectro spectrometer, spectroanalysis machine, or whatever. Yeah. And so late at night, you know, he turns on the machine and is analyzing the gem, and it explodes. And it kills him. Uh, But we see before the police get there uh, that actually the djinn is now out. Yeah. He's out in in this smaller form, right? He's in this little kind of creature that crawls across the ground, doesn't have legs. And the smaller version of uh, the djinn is actually played by uh, Vern Troyer. I know, This is one of his first film roles. Yeah, like, like his third film role was this one. First one was Pinocchio's Revenge. You've seen that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nothing too too remarkable, right? Uh, but yeah, he was in, in this one too. The explosion yeah. doesn't kill Josh. It just uh, no. badly, badly injures him. And then, yes, this little – it reminds me of um, the tequila worm from uh, yes. Poltergeist or Poltergeist, Poltergeist 2, whichever one it was. Two. You know, it's just kind of this slithering thing. But it, it it crawls up to Josh and says, I can take your pain away. Do you wish it? And he says, yes. So to take his, that's the thing. This is, it's very much a monkey's paw kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. you can wish for whatever you want to, but the gin is going to somehow make it horrible for you. Yeah. And so, yeah, <laughs> it takes away his pain by killing him. And then uh, it grows, like it it derives its power uh, from these wishes. And from the very beginning, it's like Alex, Alexandra, she is somehow connected to it, the the djinn or somehow. And so she has these visions. And so whenever it kills somebody, like she sees it, like she experiences it and it causes her great turmoil. (laughs) (laughs) Causes her to spring up in bed where she apparently lights candles at the foot of her bed before she goes to sleep, which is a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> she throughout the whole movie is really most of the movie from here on out until they meet up is just her freaking out every time and really freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> every time she gets one of these visions. Well, and it's funny that you said she lights candles. She she does. Fire is a big motif 
for her in this mm. movie because <laughs> apparently her parents were killed in a fire and she was there and she was able to save her younger sister, but she wasn't able to save her parents. So that's constantly on her mind and she has visions of fire all the time. Doesn't stop her from lighting candles all over her house while she's <laughs> sleeping and also doesn't sleeping. stop her from smoking 4,000 cigarettes in this movie. <laughs> 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 so right <laughs> it's so funny it totally dates this movie because people don't smoke in movies anymore because smoking's bad no. don't it's bad for you mm. don't do it but she does she's a big old smoker anyway whatever <laughs> just random observations <laughs> from me but then it just kind of for a little while you know cuts to these scenes where i guess the djinn is like trying to build his power or whatever. And so he's kind of going around tricking people into making wishes. One of the first ones is this bum that he finds on the street mm. played by Buck Flower. <laughs> Love the guy. <laughs> so iconic. Pops up in all of these horror movies often as a bum. But gosh, at this point, now that we've watched so many movies and now that I know who he is, every time he pops on, like, I get so excited. I'm like, ha ha, it's Buck Flowers. <laughs> Buck Flowers. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he's uh, he's a bum and he's like hanging outside a, oh, what's the word? A, a pharmacy. And um, the pharmacist comes out and yells at him and tells him to go away. And this was the guy that I'm like, that guy is familiar. I know Me I know too. who that guy is. And so I looked him up and it's Reggie Bannister from all of the Phantasm movies. Mm -hmm. So many cameos. They have a fight full. Like it's just profanity laced. I thought it was just hilarious. <laughs> it is. But uh, then Buckflower bumps into the gin in an alley and the gin tricks him into making a wish. And he says, you know, and he's got this great voice like, what would you do? <laughs> I can't even do it. He's got this great, like, what would you wish yeah. for? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This great, like, low, gravelly voice. What would you have happen? Give it some thought. Enjoy it. Hey, should only get cancer. Should only get cancer and die. As you wish. So, of course, <laughs> the pharmacist immediately gets like, <laughs> I don't even know what it's supposed what to is be. This? Some kind of uh, like instant skin cancer in every cell in your body all right. at once or something. <laughs> and so he just immediately dies. It's just it's a lot of airbag airbags and bubbles underneath his bladders yeah. underneath his, his fake skin. It's fun. <laughs> I mean, I thought it. It's cool, yeah. yeah. The bum runs off and the gin's like, enjoy your time while you still have a soul. So, like, I guess he is collecting these people's souls who make these wishes, but not right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll get back to He's going to wait later. for just the right moment. <laughs> all right. And, of course, Alex sees all this, too, because she sees everything that happens. The plot really... I guess in looking at my notes, it, it it looks to me like the plot is kind of plotting at this point. And I guess it is. I think it is. But there, but there's yeah. so much like 
it feels fast paced because it's so effects driven and they don't really linger on any one scene for too long. True. And, and yeah, so, I mean, she's just kind of, you know, this weird stuff is happening to her. And so she's just kind of trying to investigate and figure out what's going on. Yeah. She seems to think that there's something up with the gem because that was what, you know, she left with him and when it had, ex- when it exploded and he had been killed and she had even seen when they were looking at it together something weird inside. So she decides to try to track down exactly where this gem came from. She presumably goes to the figures out that it came from the pawn shop, uh, from from talking to Nick, who she got it from, and then um, she. I don't know where you're getting Nick. <laughs> you're obsessed with Nick. His name is no. Josh. Nick is the guy. No, 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 no. Josh was her friend. Nick is the guy who's all obsessed with money, right? Who's like, uh, oh, oh, right, her boss. Gonna give you're me right, you're money. right. Her yeah, boss. her boss. Sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, she tracks it through Nick, and then they go, and she ends up somehow finding the dock worker uh, who stole it. And from there, he just mentions that he got it from the statue. And there she goes and meets up with Robert Englund's character. And that's when he, we see his whole house, which looks suspiciously like exactly the same set that we saw in the very beginning of the movie. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> suspiciously similar where he just has a like you said he's like an old rich uh asshole who collects uh all of these artifacts and he has one he says from every ancient civilization and that pedestal right there it was where that statue was going to go but i'm still throwing a party for it and uh, if you want why don't you come on out <laughs> and bring your sister <laughs> bring your sister along <laughs> and i love all the little shades he's throwing in here like i don't know if he was going to try to molest her or what he was going on here but anyway she collapses has another vision blah 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 um it's all just basically leading up to this guy uh the jinn of uh, finding her so that's what's kind of plotting, I think, is her side of it, maybe. Yeah. And I think what's sort of plotting about it is we already know, right? Like, we already know exactly where the gem came from. And so we're just watching the first five minutes of the movie in reverse for the next 20 minutes of the movie, interspersed with the gin stuff, which is way more interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if it was a mystery like that we were kind of engaged with too, we were kind of wondering. But even the folklore of the jinn himself is spelled out to us in a few sentences in the beginning of the movie. So these scenes where she meets up with the folklorist and she basically says exactly the same thing to her. That's true. Are like, oh, okay, like, tell me something new. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that's why it felt plotting on that side. That's fair. <clears throat> I, I think that's totally fair. But at the same time, I mean, even before we get there, and I like that the the lady that plays whoever she is, college professor or whatever that explains oh, yeah. the gin legend. I, I think she's Jenny cool. O'Hara. But um even before that, like the gin goes to a morgue and gets a body, like he just doesn't manifest into some human version of himself. Like he goes and gets a body and he tricks the morgue worker into he's like do you wish you didn't see this? And the guy's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so then he like <laughs> makes it so the guy's eyes are like stitched up and grown together. Just these little things uh, that are not really relevant to the plot at all. I mean, it's just excuses for doing these makeup Glory. effects and practical effects. But I, in the moment, I didn't care because they looked good and they looked yeah. cool. And I I, en- I enjoyed seeing it. 
But he gets this, you know, human body. And it's funny because then from that point on, pretty much every woman who sees him, like, takes off her panties and throws them at him like he's supposed to be, <laughs> like, the the hottest guy. And he's a handsome man. He is. I just don't know that he necessarily justifies the reaction that he immediately gets from every woman that he sees. For example, when he goes to get a suit uh, in a, in a store and the gorgeous uh, sales girl is totally flirting with him. And he eventually, you know, while she's ringing him up, he like just makes money appear on the counter or whatever. And says something about how beautiful she is. And, don't you wish you could be beautiful forever? And she's like, well, I guess he's like, well, say it. <laughs> she's like, okay, <laughs> I wish I could be beautiful forever. And then he turns her into a mannequin. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> silly. Yeah. I don't know. I just, but it's, it's clever. I mean, it's, it's an interesting superpower, right? Like it, it definitely gives him limitations. Like you said, he can't, go around with a sword and cut people. Like, you get this idea like he's actually unable to do that. Right. So he has to trick them into wishing for something in order to get his stuff done. And half of the time, it's these corny sort of silly ways. But it gets the job done, and that's probably what you're stuck with. So, you know, when you're when you're a djinn, this is, this is the, the, the clay with which you work. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing. Too like he has to get them to wish and he has to get them to wish for the right thing. And it always works out. But there's at least one scene where it almost doesn't. Yeah. He's trying to hunt her down, I guess, because she's the one that let him out. He has to get her to make three wishes in order for him to truly be freed and for all his brethren to be freed and for them to take over the world or whatever. But he ends up at her job. And it's late at night, so it's closed, of course. And there's a security guard played by Kane Hodder. Again, another mm -hmm. big horror guy. And at, at first, he's trying to get this security guard to wish. And he does, but he just wishes, I wish you would go away or, or something like that. And you can tell by Andrew Divoff's performance that he's really irritated by this because it's like he has no choice but to do what was wished. So he turns around to leave. No. But no. I have to get inside. Well, now you'd have to go through me. <laughs> and that is something I would love to see. And this is one of those not practical effects that's just okay. Like he turns him into oh, pretty bad glass or <laughs> crystal or something and walks right through him and, and he shatters into a million pieces. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can keep yeah. going on. Like it, he, he finally gets Alex's location because he talks to Nick and he, you know, charms him with kind of a magic trick, turning something into gold or something. And, but then uh, Nick's like, well, I can't tell you where she is. And he's like, well, I'll make it worth your while. What do you want? He's like, a million dollars. And then we just see this random scene where this sweet old lady's getting on a plane and the the person who's taking her ticket's like, oh, you forgot to sign for the insurance policy. And she's like, oh, oh, 
well, I guess I better do that because it'll go to my son, Nick. And like, so <laughs> next shot is the plate exploding. exploding. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the other that's thing so that cute. I like about the movie, too, is that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Like, it's well, serious, goofy. Clearly not. And it knows yeah. it's goofy. And that's okay. Anyway, I like it. Then she goes and visits Wendy. Wendy, I don't even know who Wendy is. Wendy is like a college professor or something. She's a professor of folklore. Yeah. But you said who she was played by. What, what was this lady's name? Uh, Jenny O'Hara. I recognized her right away, too. And I'm not exactly sure what I specifically recognized her from. But I looked her up and she was in, I think it was M. Night Shyamalan's Devil. Ah, uh, yes. The movie where they're like all trapped in an elevator and... One of them is the devil. <laughs> but she was oh, in that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, I, I I, didn't say she was the devil, Todd. <laughs> One of them is the devil. But I guess now I did. Spoiler alert. She was in Mystic River as well. Um, but she's been all over television. I think that's probably. Probably. Yeah. She, she has a very distinctive look. I recognized her as well. And I was embarrassed to know to, to not be able to pinpoint where. But I just feel like I've probably just seen her as a bit character in a lot of different TV TV shows, really. Yeah. But I, I like her. Yeah. She was really good. She, she's got a commanding presence. And, and then I don't remember exactly what happens next. But what what I do remember is that eventually like the gen tracks Alex down because Alex like coaches youth basketball. Like, I guess that we're supposed to like think that she's a good person because she coaches basketball. I don't know. <laughs> he tracks her down at uh, a basketball game and he, the gin does and he, he meets her sister. So, you know, we know that he knows that she has a sister, blah, blah, blah. But eventually Alex goes back to Wendy. And I really liked that scene in Wendy's apartment. I just thought it was really clever. Of course, I knew what was going on, but I didn't know and couldn't remember if the first time I had seen it, that it was as obvious as it seemed this time. It takes a little while to catch on because it's just, you know, Wendy's just explaining to her more about the mythology. But then she starts acting like she's like, oh, do you want me to open the window? Are you a little hot in here? And she's like, no, I'm fine. It's like, oh, do you need something to drink? And she's asking her, after about the second or third request, we're, as the audience, we're like, oh, this is this is out of place. Something is up. Even Alex herself is uh, saying, no, um, why are you asking me all of these things? And it's clearly, uh, becomes clear to us that she's the djinn in disguise and that what's happened is the djinn has killed her as well, which uh, he reveals himself to Alex and basically says, you know, you, it's time for you to make your three wishes. And the way that he... Now, help me out here, because he compels her to make her three wishes, but not right away. Oh, oh yeah, her first wish... He gives her a free one, because uh, she says, well, I just want to wish you dead. And so he says, all right, well, you can use that one. And uh, he shoots himself through the chin, blows his brains out, and it immediately seals back up again. Uh, he says, that which is immortal cannot be killed. So that was your free wish, you know, now you've got your other three. Uh, and then she wishes herself to know. She says, uh, I always tell my students, but he's, she's talking about her basketball yeah, kids, yeah. to know your, know your opponent. So I want to know about you. 
And so he says, as you wish, in the way that he shows her about him as he puts her back in his little lair inside the opal, which which reminded me a little bit of uh, of Cube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah. red glowing walls and, and tunnels and passageways and everything. So it's not just him that was trapped in here, but he's got a whole host of little monsters and creatures, some little... Again, a lot of these things are clearly just there to be more effects for us to ooh, ooh and ah over. Yep. Uh, and he's got this little, it almost looks like a cross between a bird and a dog. It's all slimy and bony, and it chases her around. Uh, and she wishes herself out of it and back to her apartment without him there. Right. And that's what happens. So now she's used her two wishes. I know, and that was my least favorite part of the movie. First of all, the fact that the fact that he says... I'll give you one free wish. Bullshit. Like, <laughs> yeah, who's going to fall? Really? Like, first of all, why would he do that? Secondly, even if he were telling the truth, I certainly wouldn't believe that. Like, that's bullshit. Like, yeah, he, yeah, you say that. And then that's just my wish. Like, that's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then her first wish is, I want to know what you are. What more do you need to know? Like. Wendy has explained this to you in great detail like and she doesn't learn anything new no she just gets chased around in the by the hellhound in the gym world or whatever she doesn't learn anything new and then that forces her into her second wish which is just I want to go home and so now she's two down like yeah man talk about wasting your wishes lame (laughs) (laughs) but it ups the ante because we know that if she can be convinced to do one more wish then life on earth as we know it is over i know and we're nearing the end of the movie so i guess they had to (laughs) the stakes (laughs) they'd rather spend time on this boring investigation than actually like this part i think (laughs) (laughs) yeah So she wishes her way back home and she gets there and she finds a note from her sister saying, I waited for you as long as I could, but you never showed up. So I went ahead and went to Beaumont's party and the gin calls her on the phone, you know, <laughs> as, as genies will. Yeah. And says, uh, we're connected now, you know, anywhere you are, I'm there too or whatever. And, we see that, you know, like she tries to race to the party, but he's, you know, right there. She stops the car and, and he's right there outside her window and busts out her window or whatever. She finally gets to the party and Tony Todd, mm-hmm. Candyman himself, is the doorman slash bouncer. She runs up to him and she's like, you got to you got to help me. This guy's following me. He's trying to kill me or or whatever. And so he lets her inside and then uh, he has a conference. Tony Todd has a confrontation with the, the gin in human form. He's in his human form now. And I thought that was funny. Like they kind of have a little pissing contest for a second. Yeah. <laughs> At first you think, yeah, he's not going to be easily fooled. Uh, but then he says, this was the silliest one of them all, really. It is. <laughs> he yeah. says to him, don't you wish you had another job? <laughs> and he's right. like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, no, really. You could. Don't you wish you could escape is what he says. Yeah, right. I, I would. And then he says, as you wish. And then as he walks away, we see behind him, he's in a like a padlocked uh, glass case with water in it. And he's tied up with chains like like Houdini. Yeah. In a, one of his illusions. And he's like, he said, he, as he walks away, he says, Houdini only took three minutes to escape from that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, so oh, silly. It, it really was. That's that's the silliest one. Plus, it kind of, I mean, I, I get the whole monkey's paw idea, like your wish gets turned around on you or whatever. But if your wish is, I wish I could escape, one would think that he would be able to escape yeah, I, I don't know. No, you're whatever. Right. You're 100. It, right. It's it's still you know it's a funny visual and it gives an opportunity for us to see Tony Todd, young, thin, you know, probably <laughs> relatively early in his career. I don't remember. Fresh from Candyman. Yeah, I think it was around the same time. But anyway, okay, so uh, they go. They're in the party, and Alex is running around looking for Shannon, her sister. Shannon for no reason is being kind of standoffish because she finally finds her. Alex finds her and she's like, we have to leave right now. We have to go. We have to go. And Shannon's like, no, I'm staying. Like like, you would think these two seemingly are close. Like they live together. Mm. Uh, Alex saved her from a fire. You know, one would think that Shannon might, trust her sister a little bit but no she's like no i'm staying did you see beaumont's new friend he's so hot (laughs) (laughs) and and they look and beaumont is talking to the gin in his human form and then we cut to their conversation they're commenting on the party i remember a certain potentate whose last party was talked about for centuries what do you mean it went down in history oh yes God, how I'd love to host a party like that. And he's talking about the opening scene that we saw. And then again, (laughs) it's just, it's the impetus for this huge effects-driven slaughter of this party. And it's so much fun. Like, this this isn't a great movie. I mean, it's not a great movie, but these moments... Um, are just so much fun to watch. And I loved all the stuff that was going on in what probably boils down to five minutes. But if that. Oh, I don't know. I think it's probably more like 10. (laughs) It's very, very um, dead alive style where everything just goes crazy and it's blood and guts and gore and and things, crazy things happening everywhere. Statues are coming to life. The cops show up and they're trying to trying to shoot at the statues and the statues are exploding, but they're also cutting people to ribbons. The director himself, Robert Kurtzman, uh, has a cameo in here as well as a guy who's uh, standing around too close to the piano and the piano starts playing itself and all the wires spring out of it and wrap around his arms and his face and his head and basically pull his head off. Mm. It's just a mess of of this stuff. And it's fun. You're right. It's just uh, gratuitous. <laughs> out the yin yang and uh and in the meantime she's just running around alex and eventually gets cornered by the gin yeah the you mentioned that piano wire scene there's a making of documentary on the dvd or at least the mm-hmm. dvd that i have i i saw you can also find it on youtube it's really not all that informative but they do show how they did some of these practical effects and the way that they did that piano wire effect they show that in great detail and and it looks really cool and and the director you know i have no idea how old he is but he certainly was very young at heart and was he said that he's not much of an actor but give him any opportunity to die on film and he'll he'll do it and (laughs) 
it, it was really cool to see how uh, they did that. There were some other things. There are lots of fire effects in this movie, and, and lots of them are here in this final scene. And there's lots of behind-the-scene footage of that. And they had some really close calls yeah. with explosions and things. Like, there was one um, scene. It's here at the end. I don't remember exactly when it is. But a man is engulfed in fire and, and runs and jumps out a window. Well, the first time they lit this guy up, you know, and he was in a fire suit and all the safety precautions, you know, all all that was set but he went to jump out the window and it didn't break and he just bounced off it <laughs> and uh fell back onto the floor and you know they they're shooting all this behind the scenes and you see that they urgently had to get the fire extinguishers to to put him out because everything was supposed to happen on the other side of the wall and it didn't break there was another scene where there was some sort of explosion, a statue or something was supposed to explode and they set charges at various levels in the statue, I think from top to bottom, and they were supposed to explode in sequence. But the first explosion was so hot that it caused the lower charges to malfunction and both of them exploded at the same time. And there was a big fire and you see it happen and you see them put the put it out and there's so much smoke. But then what's really interesting to see is the aftermath. Like the cameras were right there to capture it. And in the aftermath they show, the cameras are just completely melted. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess there was so much smoke that day that they were forced by the fire marshal to shut down shooting for the rest of the day. But anyway, that documentary, it's only like 20 minutes, is on YouTube if you're interested. But yeah, the, so basically it comes down to the same scenario the the opening scene was where the djinn has Alex cornered and he basically says, you can wish all this away. And the stakes are especially high because he's got Shannon trapped in a painting and she's burning. And so uh, in order to save her sister and herself, it's a double-edged sword because even if she wishes to save them in this moment, supposedly that unleashes hell on earth. So, you know, what? what's the point? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. But she's very clever. She thinks really hard <laughs> <laughs> about her final wish. And she like flashes back to all this research research that she's done. And um, she sees the article about the initial accident that released the stone. And she flashes on this name in the text. I wish. Wish on child. Stillness. I wish Mickey Torelli hadn't been drinking on the job two days ago. Initially, the gin is like, ha ah, she made her wish. And then he's like, oh, wait, damn. Because <laughs> that means the stone never got released from the statue. And so he never got freed. And everything goes back in time. We see that doc scene again, but this time the guy's not drunk, so everything's fine. The assistant doesn't get squashed. The stone doesn't get broken. I, I don't really understand this because, like, 
are we supposed to think that Alex is still aware of what happened? I don't know. It, it seems like the movie's kind of implying that because the next scene is between her and uh, her friend Josh. Uh-huh. And instead of being real tentative about their relationship, she kind of has this knowing smile and she's like, yeah, let's go out. And and she kisses him. Yeah. And so that was, yeah, you're right. It feels like it's a knowing Alex, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. She could just have had a change of heart over the last day. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Yes. Or, or I don't know. Maybe yeah. something inherent about her character was changed, even if she doesn't remember. I don't know. <laughs> but then it flashes back to Beaumont's house and the pedestal where the statue is always supposed to be. And now it is there. And the camera like zooms into the statue and into the stone. And we see the djinn sitting on his throne, just trapped within and that's the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's fine. I, obviously, it's, yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Todd's review is it was fine. It's fine. Well, <laughs> I mean, I got everything to say about it that you said about it. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to see all the different gore effects and things. Uh, it did get a little plotting in the middle. It was a rather simple story, and some of it was a little hokey and cheesy. But it was a unique concept, and again, this idea of the, this character's powers are better than just a guy running around slashing people or a guy running around making magical things happen. It's it's cool. It's sort of like the vampire trying to convince you to invite him into his home, right? Right. Yeah. There's that moment there where you kind of root for the the human, like, oh, don't let him, don't let him do it, don't let him do it, man. You have more power than you realize. It's just your words, and then they say something like, I want this or I wish this, and then it's all over for him, right? So right. there's that aspect. I didn't think the monkey's paw aspect of it was as clever as it could have been, I I suppose, but I, I can't write a movie, you know, so who knows what I would come up with. But it just would have been neat if those aspects were just a little more like clever twists, like a little more Twilight zone But that's just a small thing. And I thought that the character himself was pretty cool. I liked, you know, his eyes, his physicality, that, you know, the makeup and everything. Apparently it was a huge pain to get into and out of, like three hours to get into it, an hour and a half to get out of it every day. Mm-hmm. But, but they really designed a cool creature. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the story was rather simple and kind of silly at times. So it, it wasn't one that I'm going to probably go back and watch too often. Not one I'm going to buy on DVD, Craig. So To be fair, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> I, I bought it when our last video rental store closed down oh. and, and they were liquidating all of their stuff. And so I got it on a, a, a double disc with Wishmaster 2 for like a dollar. <laughs> Have you seen the second one? I have. I've seen all of them. The second one uh, is pretty good. I didn't enjoy it as much as I liked the first one, but I still enjoyed it. And um, I think that that's largely because of Andrew Divoff. I mean, even in the Jin's human form. He's cool. Yeah. He's still very menacing. I mean, he's got that great voice. He's got these piercing eyes and, and they, they do, you know, he, he plays both forms in the second one also. Uh, the first movie was made on a $5 million budget, uh, six months start to finish. They shot it in 33 days, and it grossed $16 million. So, you know, they, they went forward with the uh, second one, and the second one, I think, 
the fans of the first one came out for the second one, so it did okay too. Well enough for them to greenlight a third one. Andrew Divoff was on board to reprise the role for the third one, but he wrote a treatment for the script and the studio rejected it in favor of a different script that Divoff hated. And so he left and they replaced him uh, with an actor named John Novak. And they shot Wishmaster three and four back to back. Oh, one of those. Yeah, they had like a weekend between uh, the two. And three and four aren't as good. They're not as clever at all. They lean more into the fantasy. There's a lot less gore. Um, I still watched them and I didn't hate them, but they're obviously lower quality. I mean, they feel like made for cable movies because they are. Overall, you know, this first one I think was pretty ambitious. And and considering the fact that it was shot so quickly on a relatively meager budget, I mean, $5 million, I'll never have $5 million, but that's a fairly low budget, especially for such an effects-driven movie. And it, it did pretty well. I'm kind of surprised. I feel like this franchise is forgotten. Yeah, I, I never hear anybody talk about it. I never see anything about it. And that surprises me because I, I think that it was clever. I don't know. I, I have an appreciation for it. I don't think that it's amazing. I don't think it's a great movie. But uh, if you're a horror fan... Uh, I think at least the first one and maybe the first two um, are worth checking out. They're fun little rides. You know, they're popcorn movies. They're fun popcorn movies. And I I would recommend them. I like them. And check out the cameos. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's worth it for the cameos alone. Anyway, those of you out there in Internet land, let us know what you think about this movie. I'd be interested to know if I'm the only one who uh, remembers it fondly and still thinks of it fondly. Of course, we are happy to talk to you about whatever you'd want to talk about. We are very much open to requests. We've got kind of a long list of requests that we're working on now. But if you've got something you would like for us to talk about, we will put you on the list and we will try to get to you as soon as we can. You can find all of our back episodes anywhere where you can find podcasts. Just Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast and you'll find us all over the place. Check out our YouTube page. Uh, We're not doing a whole lot with it yet, but... Uh, the more subscribers we can get, the more we may be able to do with that. And hopefully we can broaden our viewership a little bit more until we meet again. I am Craig and I'm Todd with two guys in a chainsaw.